Yeah, taste buds. Today's House of Carbs brought to you by our good friends at Le Creuset. As a chef, they're always talking about sourcing the best quality ingredients, knowing their suppliers. But as all my hungry homies out there know, using the right cookware and tools is just as important. Le Creuset was the first to introduce beautiful color to the kitchen and they were the pioneer of the enameled cast iron pan all cast iron is still made in france since 1925 in an original french foundry each piece of cast iron is touched by 15 pairs of craftsmen's hands original heirloom cookware backed by a lifetime warranty I will tell you right now, my taste buds, I am going to pass down my beautiful five and a half quart red Le Creuset Dutch oven in which just last night I cooked. I've been threatening to make this beautiful chicken curry. Last night I made it and it was delightful. It was a little too spicy for my wife, but she will survive. It was delicious. The Le Creuset Dutch Oven is the perfect vehicle for this perfect food. I may or may not share the recipe. We can discuss that offline. My friends, get free shipping at lecreuset.com slash carbs. You just enter promo code carbs. That's how you get the free shipping. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash carbs. Enter promo code carbs. My Taste Buds Today show also brought to you by our very good pals at Joule. You can host the most delicious dinner party ever with the Joule sous vide because with Joule, it is easy to make incredible steak, chicken, pork, veggies, even desserts. I haven't done the desserts, but I have done the proteins. There is zero guesswork. So food is never under or overcooked and you can host incredible parties without stress because you can step away from the kitchen with the Jules sous vide. It's hands free. You just set it and you kind of can forget it and let your guests arrive when they're going to arrive and you go mingle. Have a little sip. Have two sips. Have three sips. Have 77 sips if you happen to have the Natural Light 77 pack that's featured on today's food news. Focus on your party. That's what the Jules Sous Vide will do for you. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Jules and use code CARBS to get $15 off for a limited time. Good deal right there. 15 bucks is meaningful because this thing is not very expensive. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E code CARBS. Jewel, perfect food every time. Hey now, my hungry homies, my taste buds, my culinary comrades, we have done it. We are back. Welcome to another edition of House of Carbs, the food podcast for the hungry people. By the hungry people, I am your hungry host, Joe House. Hungry homies, what a show today. I have been pondering for quite some time the right guest to invite on to House of Carbs 
right here in my hometown, the Washington, D.C., DMV, that's D.C., Maryland, Virginia, metropolitan area. And this gentleman, our guest today, Tim Carmen from the Washington Post, he is a food correspondent. So he is on the hustle, out finding wonderful hidden gem places to eat in the DMV, but he's also chronicling important big-time stories. We had three such stories here emanating from D.C. I tackle all of them with Tim. They cover everything from Jose Andres and his uh, efforts to feed Puerto Rico to Mike Isabella to the crazy thing that happened when Ted Cruz tried to go eat in an Italian restaurant here in Washington Tim was there for all of it and covered all those things. It's an awesome conversation. It's a long conversation, but we uh, really get deep on kind of the D.C. food scene. I think you're going to enjoy it. Of course, we have food news with my girl, Juliet Littman. We talk about many things, including 77 beers available in a single container. And that is important news, my friends. But let's get in that belly with my new pal, Tim Carmen. All right, my hungry homies, today's guest, a very special guest. I have been hesitant, reticent, my taste buds, to tackle the Washington, D.C. food scene because I feel like I might be something of an unreliable narrator. You're not going to get the full deal from me. And I've been looking for and thinking about the right person to come on the House of Carbs and help us kind of understand the food moment that D.C. is in and look backwards and think about where D.C. has come from. My guest today is the food reporter at The Washington Post. He's been there since 2010. Before joining The Post, he was at a beloved uh, uh, journalistic endeavor here in Washington, D.C., the Washington City Paper, where I have been uh, getting information about food and music shows really since I was about 14 years old. He has written for a variety of publications in by magazine, The American Scholar, Men's Journal. His work has appeared in five volumes of the best food writing collections, a three-time nominee for the James Beard Award, also the winner of the James Beard Award in 2011 for food-related columns and commentary, Tim Carmen, welcome. I can't live up to that. You, you, you—it's your bio. It, it, you, you do live up to it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I can't live up to. I guess your, uh, uh, your uh, depiction of it, uh, the, the, the artistic rendering of my bio. It's, it's a, it's a work of art. It's well, beautiful. Look, you're, you're. I know you're being humble here in the moment, um, but I'll just tell you this is going to be kind of a a serial flattery exercise <laughs> you you have been in many respects my dc food sherpa my dc food explorer the 20 dollar diner column that that you pen and you have penned for for some number of years for the post is a very trusted resource in my life you have no idea now the only thing the only complaint i have to levy Related to that column is you you uncover the gems. The gems come out that way. You are among many who <laughs> love to complain about like ruining their favorite yeah. restaurant. Right, exactly. So uh, I want to talk to you about your your background a little bit. How you arrived here in Washington D.C. Yeah, and you know it's very incredible timing in the sense that like 
if I think back 15 years to what the Washington, D.C. food scene used to be like and how it's changed over that time, your arrival here and living through that food uh, uh, revolution is, is uh, feels like too strong a word, but maybe not. Um, so yeah. let's start with yeah. wh- where, where you come from. Where'd you come from? Well, I, I've lived in a number of cities. Uh, I was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. Yes. So Midwestern by birth. Uh, I lived in Kansas City. So I uh, lived uh, through and ate my way through the barbecue scene there. Wow. Great barbecue scene in Kansas City. I mean, legendary. Yeah. The famous. Uh, Arthur Bryant's, mm-hmm. uh, Gates and Sons. Jack Stack. That was l- after my time there, okay, but I've okay. been there. I have been there uh, in going back and can visiting we, family. Can we mention them in the same breath of those other institutions? You know, I don't think they're quite the institutions of Gates and Sons okay. and Arthur Bryant's, sure. but they're good. They're very okay, good. Great. Um, and then I moved to Houston and mm-hmm. I live in Houston for a long time. Wow. So um, speaking of. Yeah, I just made a, a trip straight south. And uh, so, you know, I always like to think I was born in the Midwest, but my heart resides in Texas. Okay, interesting. So you have a lot of barbecue in your background. And I do want to touch on this with you um, because uh, I greatly enjoyed some of the back and forth between you and some of the real um, barbecue. I mean, snobs might be overstating it, but I use it in kind of a beloved way. I mean, Daniel Vaughn and my boy, Matthew Odom, um, you know, uh, Daniel Vaughn is the legendary uh, uh, writer of what's his column? Well, he's the Texas Monthly Barbecue Editor who goes by the handle Barbecue snob. There we go. So you you there nailed him. That's I don't think he would argue with that. <laughs> and I think Matthew also Matthew writes for uh, the Austin, Austin American States. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. That's who, right. Who recently got himself in boy a mess of a deep in hot water. Uh, he wrote about the the very famous Lockhart barbecue scene. Yes. And said it was overrated. Oh oh, oh Matthew. Yeah. I know. He's in trouble. Yeah. They might revoke his Texas card. I think they did. I think it's officially been revoked. <laughs> well, he, yeah. I, 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 he's coming on. I have him lined up here uh, in about a month because he came out in the summer and ate all over this fine city of ours and tried a whole bunch of different places. And I was very uh-huh. – I sent him a note saying, hey, dude, you were here five months ago. Where's the story? I want to see what you what you thought. Right, And right. He's, he's been working it up. So we're going to have him on shortly, and I'll have to ask him how the status of his Texas card in that conversation. I'm surprised he didn't reach out to me. We had such <laughs> – a wonderful argument a year or so ago. It was a great one. So let let but let's go back uh, to your arrival in D.C. and kind of your sense when you when you got here. Uh, now you came here to work for the Washington City Paper, right? I did not. Oh, pardon me. No, How no, dare no, I? no. I uh, I came here in two thousand one, and I it's, it's interesting, and I'm not sure. I haven't really told this story a whole lot, but I came here in two thousand one uh, in another. For another relationship. Oh. And uh, I was talking with the Washington Post, and it was actually for an editor job. Okay. In the style section, a job that I really wanted at the time. Yeah. And uh, then 9-11 happened. Oh. And, uh, of course, we know what happened after that. The economy kind of right, tanked. It right. was really hard for newspapers after that. Uh-huh. And they just, like, froze all positions at the Post. So then I was like, oh, now what am I going to do? 
Yeah. So I uh, I worked on a website for like four years. Oh, okay. Yeah. What was the website? It well, it was, I was the editor of a nonprofit website. Oh. Uh, for the Humane Society of the United States. Okay. Yeah. So not didn't have anything to do with food at all. No, it was more advocacy. Food. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I had worked in newspapers all most of my career up right. to that point. Right. And I, I, you know, I got to make some money. No, too. I understand. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah, but I got the best thing out of it was my wife. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, M. Carrie Allen, who is also the spirits columnist for the Post. Oh, now she was she the spirits columnist for the Post back then? No, right. So look yeah. where they, look at the both of you. I know, and she's I don't know if you read her much, but she's amazing. I, I I'm gonna. I have, tout, tout I, her right now. Well, I'm familiar with her work. Now, I, I don't, I'll just confess in, in my um, research of you and your writing, I didn't make that connection, but, you know, congratulations. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you were here for a handful of years in a different walk of life. Um, and in, in many ways, like kind of a very Washington, D.C. kind of walk of life. You arrived here and immediately started doing a D.C. thing. I did. And, and you know, I was, it wasn't what I felt like I was meant to do. Yes. So I went to l'Academy de Cuisine also while I was editing the website. Huh. And, you know, now it's all gone. Right. They they kind of imploded. Right. Went bankrupt about, it's been almost a year now. So bad timing by them. Very quick aside. The, this city is food crazy. Yeah. How can you not have a business where you bring in people who are, who are food enthusiasts? I, my own yeah. self, have sampled some of their courses, enjoyed learning yeah. how to how to properly roll phyllo, phyllo dough at yeah. la, la, la Cuisine. How can you not make it work? You know, I think it's a classic case of not having a legacy plan in yeah. place. You, you had a charismatic owner mm -hmm. who founded it did very well and then got into his advanced years right. and did not know how to let go of yeah, this company. I, I don't know if you're a fan of the HBO show Succession. No, but I and, seen I, it. and I don't imagine that that um, this gentleman had anything like the family intrigue of the HBO program. But Succession is important with family owned businesses. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but you had food in your background before coming here to DC and going to uh, to the actual formal chef training. What was the inspiration to do the chef training? Um, that's a good question. I still don't know the motivation. I I just wanted the. <laughs> I guess I just wanted the knowledge. Sure. Yeah, I wanted to learn how to cook better. I, you know, I taught myself basically how to cook. Yes. Um, and you know, before I came here, I was the managing editor at a weekly newspaper, kind of the, the equivalent of the city paper okay. uh, in Houston called the Houston Press, which is like barely hanging on like so many uh, the weeklies now, right, which is right. just a whole other yes. travesty. Yes. Um, but as part of my job, I was editing the food section. And we at that time had one of the best food writers anywhere named Rob Walsh. Okay. I don't know if you know Rob, but he's like a multiple James Beard Award winner, mm. pretty much has positioned himself as Mr. Texas Food. Okay. He's written many cookbooks at this point. He's written about Texas barbecue. He's written about cowboy food. Um, he's written about Tex-Mex. He's probably written the Bible on Tex-Mex. Okay. Which, you know, people outside of Texas all hate. Um, I, 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 I kind of like it. I do too. I, actually, I really like Tex-Mex. Yeah. Uh, but it's hard to find a good version of it. Right. Um, but anyway, I, I edited Rob 
In fact, I uh, was involved in hiring Rob. Oh, congrats. And we we had a good relationship. And mm. that was really, I think he was one of the main inspirations for me to want to pursue that path myself. Okay. Uh, how'd you land at City Paper? Well, I got, you know, there Todd Kleiman, mm. who used to work at the Washingtonian, and he's sort of like a big figure in the in the food writing world here in Washington. Yes. Um, he was the former... Uh, food editor, young and hungry columnist for the city paper. Right. He had moved over to the Washingtonian at the time and they were, they were looking for a new person. And I had just finished at Academy, mm-hmm. and I'm like, this might be the reason why all this clicked into place, you know, and yeah. uh, applied. And I should say I had applied for other jobs at city paper and sure. I really didn't get them. Okay. But this one, it, they hired me and I was, I was so grateful. And and when was that? What was the year that you 2005. Started? Okay, so let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Washington, D.C. food scene in 2005. So George W. Bush yeah. uh, was, was here. Uh, Never went out to restaurants. Right. Barely left the White House. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and ate his pretzels. Remember when he choked on his pretzels? I, I mean, it was, you know, legendary. Yeah. Um, the... Now, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but I want to give a proper nod to the ethnic food scene here in Washington, which has been for as long as I've been alive. I mean, I'm coming up on a milestone birthday here. I won't say which one, (laughs) but, uh, you know, the Ethiopian, the Salvadoran, uh, the Korean, um, Vietnamese, Vietnamese, and then, you know, African-American tradition kind of food ways. Those have all been present here for a long time, for a long time, preceding my uh, existence. And, you know, part of how I I came to be the food enthusiast that I am is the curiosity of traveling around in the D.C. suburbs, not D.C. downtown, hardly ever. You would you might come to Adams Morgan for Ethiopian, um, but that was really it in terms of interesting food experiences. Yeah. But um, again, I don't want to put the, my, any, any words in your mouth. I just want to recognize that there, there has always been these, these communities that um, have existed for a really long time here in the yeah. DC area. Uh, and, and that was, you know, they, they've come to the fore more, you know, as, as sort of the democratization of food has occurred yeah. and the access to information about food. But, Talk about your experience with food in, in D.C. in 2005. You know, it it was a different world. Uh, it's certainly as far as like high-end gastronomy or even mid-level cuisine, um, there wasn't a whole lot of like small, cool, chef-driven restaurants like there are now in Shaw and, and uh, you know, uh, Penn Quarter. Uh, you know, basically any emerging neighborhood that has happened in the last 10 years, there was nothing there 10 years ago. Um, but there was great, like I usually, you know, think of it as like immigrant cuisine because it's based on foods that people brought over with them mm-hmm. when they moved to this area. And there was great, there was really fascinating food. I mean, you had the Eden Center, which right. I spent so much time at the Eden Center, like, and because you have to. Yes. Because I think this is the this is the hard thing to understand. It's like, um, you know, I'm a white man, right? So there's always a little bit of a suspicion when a white man 
comes into a culture not of of his own. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the Vietnamese community is is very tight knit. They're very family focused. And I spent a long time just getting them to trust me. Uh huh. And that it took, you know, and I'm still not sure I've got yeah. complete trust, but um, that was a real goal of mine to just spend so much time there. And this was sort of a different era before everyone had to blog 20 times. Well, a day. right. And I, I want to just yeah. let um, folks listening to this, the Eden Center is this um it's it's not a, quite a neighborhood it's it's really kind of a, a, a shopping strip center. mall exactly yeah. um kind of vibe in annandale virginia which is false church oh i'm sorry false church yeah. 20 to 25 minutes outside yeah. of washington dc um with as tim is describing this incredibly diverse uh asian um it's, it's almost exclusively vietnamese the the shopping center um was pretty much filled out um, by refugees mm -hmm. from the fall of Saigon. You know, when the communists took over the country, the the people who lived in South Vietnam, they fled, and uh, many of them fled to the Washington, D.C. area. Oh. And they basically transformed um, this shopping center into a small Saigon. They actually flew, they, I think the flag still flies of South Vietnam in the Eden Center. I mean, it's like the country has been gone for how many decades now? Right. But there's still, and the generals look like there's some alleys and streets throughout the center, and they're named after like wartime generals from South Vietnam, you know, people who died and are considered heroes uh, among the refugees of the country. So there is still um, a, a visceral. Uh, flavor of Vietnam in that area. Yeah, incredible. So uh, do you have a, a view now sort of looking back um, in terms of uh, what Washington consisted of in the mid 2000s and how it's kind of developed as a city um, and the complicated, you know, effects of gentrification that has undoubtedly, you know, that that's a phenomenon that that nobody can argue with has been sort of a prevailing force here in D.C. and what it's delivered in the way of an expanded food scene within the city. Um, I, I I have um, talked with other guests who spent um, short periods of time in D.C. over this last 15 to 20 years. And I have my observations around what I think is sort of the driver yeah. behind this. But I'm, I'm curious to hear kind of your view on, on the driver. You know, there, there was good rest. There were good restaurants even then. And I think that's important to recognize. I think I think it's a little too easy to say that, you know, we've become this great food city and we were not much back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, we still had Michelle Richard right. back then. We still had Roberto Donna. Right. You know, and, and it wasn't that long since Jean-Louis Paladin had a restaurant. I mean, these are like three huge names. Yes. And we had other things. We had Ann Cashin. You know, we had Jeffrey Boobin. Mm -hmm. We had we had really good cooks. Um, and and Bob Kincaid, sure. you know, who's a James Beard winner, too. So there was there was really good restaurants and good cooking here. But that was all more on the high end. And I think, you know, where we've really done beautifully as a city in our, our culinary scene is develop this creative uh I would say not mid-level because it makes it sound sort of like 
not refined enough. But yeah, it's accessible. It's accessible. It's accessible. Some, yeah, I, like. I mean they're neighbor. They're more neighborhood kind of places. Yeah, they're, they're destinations, but they're more embedded in the neighborhood. They're not. They're not downtown. They're not in Georgetown. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like really small. Uh, neighborhood restaurants that are chef driven and exquisite and have and have like a philosophy to them. Yeah. And Do you have uh, can we name names or is it or are we going to oh, you know, leave think, somebody th out by? Um, I mean, I'm no doubt we'll, yeah, we'll leave know. many out. But I mean, I, you know, I, I think of a place like the Dabney uh -huh. in, you know, uh, just in Shaw. Spectacular. It's like a small restaurant that's dedicated to the ingredients of the mid-Atlantic. Right. And it was not only that's a small chef-driven restaurant, but it's like thought outside the box and thinking of like seasonal menus, but hyper-local menus too. Mm -hmm. And he does foraging. I mean, he did some time over in Noma, which was famous for, you know, foraging everything locally. Right. Now it's a little more difficult here, but you know, he does a lot of that. And I think that's, that is like a restaurant that's uh, I always think about when I think about the changing nature of D.C. But I mean, I think to get to your question, like what's changed it? I think money changed. It. Right. Okay. I think the bottom line is that, you know, I don't know if you remember, but like in the the late 2000s, all the celebrity chefs started showing up. here. Right. It was like someone had put out the call for celebrity chefs. We have John George Von Der Richten. We yeah. had Todd English. Right. We had Eric Repair. Mm -hmm. And where were they all at? Hotels. Yes. You know, and it was like the hotels all decided that they needed to have their own little pet celebrity chef that they could tout. Um, and they saw it in D.C. because there was like this great, um, there was an amount of wealth here that was untapped. Untapped. Yes. Yeah. This is. I'm. I'm. Uh, in some. I'm. I'm. I'm not happy to hear you say that. That's a, the wrong way to say it. I. That is the view that I've shared when I've talked with other guests about what happened in D.C. What. What changed? The big driver. Two. Two drivers. I would say. Uh, the arrival of um, Obama in town made D.C. cool to young people. And there was this great influx of, of youth to D.C. in like that 2008, 2009, 2010 um, time frame. Um, but the, the real driver was money and, and just the fact that um, there was, you know, previously not uh, a widespread recognition or understanding of, you know, sort of the I, I'm going to call it like the federal government, um, the, the, the sort of tentacles. And, and how, um, you know, the support of the federal government um, is, is a big, great big industry unto yeah. itself and has been that way for, you know, 35, 40 right. years. I mean, what city was one of the few that was not impacted that much by the the recession of 2008, 2009? Exactly. D.C. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And There's a lot of money in this town. And but I think it was perceived as not a sophisticated town. It was always perceived as, oh, you can't do that in D.C. because they're just a meat and potatoes town. Right. The characterization of our palate um, from the outside really was tied to people's perception of what went on on the Hill, which is such a, you know, you're you're you have a steakhouse offering and you have high end offerings. But people, by and large, um, haven't been incented to come down try, town town and try interesting food downtown and there's always been a chinatown uh 
you know, for as long as I've been around, that's where I could go buy beer when I was a youth. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, uh, there wasn't like, you know, a big draw in terms of, of food offerings downtown to incent people to come in. I will say one of the things, uh, Abe Poland has a complicated um, legacy here in town because while he did deliver a championship for the Bullets, right. the Washington Bullets, the Caps were always kind of underperformed and there was... Uh, Poland has been characterized as being um, loyal to a fault, he, you know, uh, in terms of the, the 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 bullets haven't won 50 games since 1978, and a lot of people sort of pin, pin it on a Poland. But uh, this is about a food. This is about yeah. food. I don't mean to yeah. go in that direction. No, a Poland built the stadium, built uh, what was back then the MCI Center. MCI Center. Yeah, That's before right, the, the Verizon first Center. Yeah. Naming rights were MCI. Um, and that opened in 1997 and immediately created a downtown that was adjacent to Chinatown, which already yeah. existed, but a, a thriving food and drink scene that didn't exist before yeah. the arrival of the stadium. Yeah, Penn Quarter. Exactly. The so-called Penn Quarter. Right. And, and, and now is populated with three different Jose Andres. Uh, three or four? Well, no, he's got he's got um, Oyamel. Yes. He's got his original Haleo. Yes. He's got China Chocano. Oh, I forgot about China Chocano. And Zatinia. And Zatinia, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, four. So, yeah. And Haleo arrived. We, did it arrive coincident with the, the, the... I don't know if you remember, but it opened in Crystal City. Oh, my gosh. It was... I've, I've been to that one. Uh, I thought that was uh, an afterthought. It was where Roberto Donna had one of his uh short-lived restaurants before he uh boy that's a complicated so we won't yeah. get into that but that was a short-lived store uh restaurant by roberto donna and then it was taken over by oyamel mm -hmm. and it succeeded for a long time but i think then there was a sense they want to consolidate and have like the jose andres restaurant crawl through uh pen pen quarter well you yeah. can you can do quite well yes. going on the jose andres uh uh, restaurant crawl. Yeah. So um, I, I, let, let's go ahead and talk about Jose, because one of the things over the past couple months, I have been you, you've just uh, been been, you know, blowing me away with uh, uh, the series of, of, of columns that you've produced documenting these incredible events of kind of national consequence occurring here in our little DC yeah. <laughs> food town. And one of the, the um, things that, that you, you did was write a, uh, is, uh, a review, a review is understating, is understating it. Um, but you know, uh, a column about Jose and his book um, that just came out um, that, that describes his uh, drive to go help people in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Yeah. He, published a book with a journalist named uh, Richard Wolf. And uh, Richard's a, you know, longtime journalist, probably been around 20 years or so. Um, and they they wrote a book that I have to admit, when I first saw it, I was like, hmm, this was dashed off awfully quickly. You know, how good is this going to be? Yes. Um, and it turns out to be a terrific book because it's really not just about, you know, the the uh, feeding of people in Puerto Rico uh, after Hurricane Maria. It's about government dysfunction. Mm -hmm. It's about a uh, crisis among 
the nonprofits and and the Red Cross and the U.S. government and FEMA about how they couldn't handle the disaster of this magnitude, you know, on an island that has already lots of issues in trying to, you know, access it to get food, um, to to hit remote remote parts of the island, and Jose and Richard were. Fearless. I mean, just fearless in laying out there everything. And actually, there were, there were, it's really interesting. And the book's called, I don't think I've mentioned it, but the book is called uh, We Fed an Island. Yes. And um, I would encourage anyone who is a Jose fan or to really want to learn about disaster relief mm-hmm. and feeding people uh, to read it. But Jose and Richard, they, they lay out and they have conversations and they put in direct quotes. And some of them are really not flattering to people from the Red Cross uh, and some other characters in the book. And before I wrote the review, I called Jose up and I was like, where'd you get these quotes? Yeah. You know, were you taking notes? Uh-huh. Like when I put quotes around something, I know it's a quote. Yes. And I wasn't sure exactly where these quotes came from. And he said, we, we were taking notes during all these meetings. Wow. And Richard was taking notes, and there may have been recordings. Mm-hmm. And he said, if it's in a quote, it was a quote. Wow. Um, so I was impressed. They were clearly, at some point, thinking that this was going to be a story. And and the truly incredible thing, and, and Jose has been properly recognized on kind of a worldwide scale, including awards here in Washington, D.C. And, and, you know, didn't he get, just get a... Uh, uh, humanitarian yeah. types of, of awards and From recognition. the James Beard Foundation, yeah. W- with good reason, because he put his life on hold to basically create the foremost and fiercest uh, uh, advocacy uh, entity for feeding people that, that have experienced uh, calamity. Yeah. I, I mean, because his resume now includes hurricanes uh i mean puerto rico yes the the wildfires in california i mean i think he's deployed his team in no less than six different uh you know it, it is so impressive yeah. what he's doing i mean you know he started out doing world he created world central kitchen this nonprofit. yes after the haiti earthquake what was that 2013 12 somewhere around there mm-hmm. and puerto rico changed everything for him because it was so large. And I, I think it's really hard to grasp. It's like, you know, most relief efforts are very short term because cities get back up pretty quickly. Like if a hurricane when Harvey hit Houston, yes. it was flooded for days, right? Right. But there were still functional parts of the city. And, 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 you know, once the waters receded, it could kind of go back to being Houston again. And the right. power got back up quickly. None of that was the, the case in, in, in Puerto Rico. And so they needed help for a long term. And, you know, the, what FEMA does and what Red Cross does, they don't make food. Mm-hmm. You know, they just drop in. They drop in a bunch of like, you know, meals ready to eat, which is this like jelly like substance that they feed soldiers, right. you know, out in the battlefield. And it's it's not really food. I mean, yeah. it's like nourishment, hmm. but it's not what people want and desire, and particularly over a long term. And people who are in uh, a recovery mode, who just suffered a trauma, right. who are trying to recover from that trauma, having the access to to real food, food cooked by other human beings. Yeah, it right? says. I mean, I mean, that's Jose's whole mo. It's like 
he knows that these people were suffering and he wanted to give them a taste of their own home. Yeah. And he knew chefs down there and they knew what people wanted and they scaled up amazingly fast. And, that, that's and, the part of it that just is mind blowing to me, the yeah. scale. Yeah, they, they found kitchens that were, you know, I mean, this was the hard thing because there wasn't power, right? Yeah. So they had to find they had to find kitchens that had power, you know, that could have access to supplies and have lots of volunteers and then just start making things. Yes. And quickly. Yes. And that was the beauty of it. Well, I, I, I'm uh, I, I've been s somewhat um, shy about reaching out to Jose to come on this podcast because I'm, I'm he just, would love it. I'm just a little intimidated. I mean, I'll just yeah. be candid about it to all the taste buds out there. I'm going to have him on, but I have to try not to, to genuflect too much is the, is the problem. Yeah. Well, he, he won't let you. He's he so admirable. You. I mean, it's just an incredible. Yeah. Plus, we he's a uh, he's on the D.C. scene wearing all the, sh the, the 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 he reps all the sports teams and everything. And, and you know, he's such an incredible guy. I want to talk to you about a less incredible person <laughs> <laughs> that you also I wonder who this is. Wrote about um, recently who's been in the news for entirely different reasons and probably or well not probably l less laudable reasons um, you documented uh, I'm not going to call it the fall because he's around and his restaurant still exists but um, the you know uh, uh, interruption of Mike Isabella Enterprises um, here in Washington, D.C. Right. So he has top chef prominence and was a nationally uh, recognized person because of this nationally recognized chef because of um, a, a, a pretty compelling and winning personality that, that he showed on the Top Chef uh, series. And he appeared on more than one, um, you know, set, sets of those shows. Yeah. I mean, he was in one competition, but he was such a good personality and people liked him and rooted for him. And he, he went back and did it. And then he came here to Washington, uh, as some other Top Chef folks have. And started kind of a, a, a food uh, empire might be overstating it, but he opened up a whole bunch of restaurants. He did. Right. Well, and I don't know if you remember, but he was at Zatina at the that, time. That was his original. That's you know, where Jose gave him his break. Jose gave him his break. And I met him when he was uh, a cook or a she the chef at uh, Zatina. Um, oh, so you go way back with Mike. So he yeah, I've known him for a long time. And, you know, he took he had to get permission from Jose to go on the show and. You know, I think in retrospect, people make it sound like Jose was good with it, but that wasn't my memory of it. I think Jose was like, I'm not so sure you want to do this. Yeah. But he did give him permission to go. And Mike did really well, although he that was that famous episode where he said, you know, basically no woman should out shuck him. Uh -huh. And uh, I think he was shucking clams with a, a Jen Carroll. Yeah. Uh, another right. chef. Right. And she was going faster than he was and he was he made some sort of sexist remark or was perceived as sexist. Mm -hmm. I think he thought it was more playful than sexist. But regardless, that that cemented his reputation at that point as sort of a piggish having some piggish behaviors. Mm -hmm. And um, but he came back and opened his first restaurant, you know, which uh, is now closed, which yeah. is Graffiato. It right. was in Chinatown, was car was it was on the other side of the Verizon Center, which was not really big deal. It's like 7th Street is where all the restaurants and all the activity is. But on 6th Street was sort of a dead zone. Yes. But so he was one of the first ones to kind of activate that area. And his restaurant did really, really well. I liked it. When, yeah. When no, it, it got great it reviews and it, it, it was good. Yeah. 
Um, I, I would go sit at that bar and, you know, sometimes at lunchtime, I shouldn't confess this at work, uh, you know, <laughs> enjoy. Yeah, no. And he, I mean, I think he opened that in what, 2011, 12. And within five years, he had more than a dozen restaurants. Mm -hmm. The growth that he, that he put into place was, I mean, it was pretty impressive. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he got investors. Uh, he had the, 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 uh, you know, he had he had this sort of uh, drive to do this, and it's a lot of work. I mean, to to run that mini restaurant. And to give him credit, he employed a ton of people. I mean, he was a pretty important economic yeah. engine in the DC food scene. Yeah. No, he had like I think over four hundred employees at one point. Yeah. So and that, that was even before he opened the eatery. Right. Out which in Tyson's. was a, yeah. short short lived. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, right. He he had a deal with out in the Tyson's corner. Uh, it's not a neighborhood. That's the, that's the wrong word to use to describe Tyson's <laughs> right. Corner. Uh, high rises. Uh, there are two giant malls, and um, Mike landed a contract to open um, an eatery there where he could deliver, you know, four or five of his different kind of pursuits all in kind of one place of the Isabella Food Court, as it were. He had nine concepts. Oh my god, nine! That's too many. Yeah, and this was already on top of like the ten plus he already had. Yes, and that almost doubled the number of employees that mm -hmm. he was going to have. He went from about 400 to over 700 right. in one, one opening. Yeah. Yeah. But his troubles, uh, you know, just for the, for, for fact purposes, I think people who have an interest in Mike Isabella know this already. Uh, he was um, brought into a lawsuit um, by a former, uh, employee slash kind of colleague slash because she was pretty far up the food she was there. actually the manager of isabella eatery at yeah. tyson's corner oh okay so yeah and she was so she was like very high up in his his uh, restaurant group yes and they got into a big fight one day and words were exchanged angry words and she uh she just quit mm-hmm and then about a month later, no, maybe a couple months later, she filed a lawsuit accusing uh, Mike and other executives in his restaurant group of, uh, I think the, the term was extraordinary sexual harassment. Yes. And, you know, then filed it again, actually pulled the first lawsuit and then refiled in federal court. Okay. And um, it was more about the nondisclosure uh agreements that he had all his employees and he, they were claiming in the lawsuit that they were using the ndas as a form of silence oh yeah to, to protect you know his this, reputation this bad behavior. yeah yeah so yeah. You, you weren't permitted under the overly expansive nda to say anything bad uh we got a copy conduct. of it and it, i mean you know i i'm sure you've seen a few ndas in your life in, in my different in my other world yeah, in, in your my other, other life world. yes um but I've never seen one um, in my limited experience with them that was as comprehensive. It included like uh, you could not talk about Mike or his personal lives or the you know his personal life or the people around him, his friends, family, mm -hmm. all that. Um, so it was it was pretty far reaching. Yeah. Um, well, uh, he is in a, a, a down moment at the time, although a handful of his eateries um, persist. And for the folks that work at those places, I'm happy that they're, they're still there because they, they turn yeah. out good food. Well, you know, he filed for Chapter 7. Yes. And 
Chapter 7 bankruptcy. So he's trying to reorganize, which is from what, you know, you probably wouldn't understand this better than I do, but the uh, restaurants don't often file for Chapter 7 because they don't have many assets unless they own their own properties. Right. And so it's really just a chance for him to try to manage the the um, debt that he has uh-huh. and get a get a grip on it, try to pay that down and keep his restaurant, you know, empire afloat. Right. So it seemed like a smart move trying to save it. But, you know, there's obviously uh, a number of people out there that. Uh, are very angry with him for all this. Yeah, and and you know the debt is a direct result of you know borrowing money to to um, build the empire and sustain the empire with a certain expectation about the public's interest in eating at your restaurants. And if the public's interest for some reason is diminished or uh, otherwise you know directed to other places because reputationally. Yeah. They don't like what they've read in the paper about Mike's personal behavior. Then, then this uh, Chapter Seven vehicle makes perfect sense. Um, again, for the folks that work, I don't have, I don't know Mike, and I don't have any um, view of of what went on between he and and his his colleague. Uh, but for the people that work at those restaurants, you know, I, I hope that um, they're able to continue on through something that's seamless enough. You know, I think my sense about Mike is that. He's not going to give up. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the way that his company organization is, um, he doesn't have a board of directors. He is at the head of the company. So it's not like when other chefs have been accused. I mean, and I, I have to be very clear. It's like what he's been accused of is not Mario Batali right. level right. assault. Yes. Um, he's been accused of harassment. And, you know, some of the behaviors are are in of themselves, you know, the accusations are pretty bad. Yes. Uh, not to discount any of that. Right. But, but I do think it's it's not the same as a sexual assault, which mm-hmm. other chefs have been accused of. Um, but I think in talking with Mike, he, um, he seems to have a very determined uh, notion to, to save it. And since he is the, the guy who owns most of the company um he can't really turn it over to anybody else right you know he's got he's only got like uh, four other people on the on management level yes. in his entire company uh none of whom are chefs well no i should take that one of one of which is a chef but uh none of which is as famous as mike and has the experience that he does in running restaurants so it's um he's got to rehabilitate He's got to rehabilitate or sell his whole company to somebody else. Yeah, yeah, that, that all makes sense. Um, the other story that you wrote about very recently, uh, based on very recent events here in Washington D.C., um, which has uh, you know kind of um, some precedence here in Washington, but never on the scale of what we. Uh, just observed was the interruption of Senator Ted Cruz and his wife trying to have dinner at Fiola, right. uh, a, a Washington, D.C. Italian restaurant that's pretty great food. And the reaction by the restaurant to the folks that came and protested and their sort of, you know, really being a, a foundational reassessment of of kind of the space that they're in and, and how they're operating and the new rules of the road yeah. here in Washington um, 
for 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 feeding folks with with you know based on a uh you know highly partisan um kind of dynamic that we're in right now it's um it was sort of eye-opening to me uh i don't know why it seems like you know this is the culture we're in but i still, feel the same way i i was it, was it was shocking to me but go ahead yeah so i mean we we are in a new era where there i mean we're obviously so divided politically and we live it day in and day out here in washington dc um, so when people from the administration try to go eat out, um, there are organized protests um, that how they find out where they eat is still kind of a question, but they will activate quickly and they will go out there and try to disrupt the meals. Mm. I mean, it's happened, I can think of like four times now. Stephen Miller right. was at a Mexican restaurant, which is priceless, right? Yeah. Um, and he was interrupted and hassled. Uh, there was the uh, uh, and the the head of um, I'm blanking on her Homeland name Security. Yes, Nielsen. thank you, Nielsen. Yes, Nielsen. yes. Uh, well, that she, was in the height of the child separation, uh, completely. And where was she eating? Right, a, a Mexican restaurant. a Mexican restaurant. Right, and she yeah. was interrupted. Uh, and but the most recent one was Ted Cruz, and that was right at the height of the Kavanaugh hearing. Yes. And he's, of course, on the Senate Judiciary Committee that was going to vote on whether to forward his nomination to the full Senate floor. And boy, that there was somehow people found out that he was going to eat at Fiola that night and they had planted like six people at the bar. Mm -hmm. And once uh, the cruises came in for dinner, another six people just ran in to the restaurant and they circled him and his wife. And of course, they videotaped it because it doesn't. It has to have yeah. it has to have video to go viral, um, and it became it became a thing. I mean, it became a yet another uh, uh, lightning rod in the in D.C. and 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 restaurants. And you know the 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 chef uh, um, Fabio Trabocchi and his wife Maria were not actually in the restaurant at the time. They were at other properties and but they their management team did what the best they could. They feel like they can't get physical with protesters and throw them out. So what they did was get between the senator and his wife and the protesters and escort them out of the restaurant. And that was seen on video, um, including the difficulty of opening the side door to get them out. Right. Um, but. Everyone thought that they had left for the night and went out to go eat somewhere else. That turned out not to be the case. But because that was the belief, the the more conservative side immediately started bombarding Fiola. Right. You know, hit their their social media accounts, hit their Yelp page, started calling the restaurants, all of them. Um started making personal death threats to management, to the owners, to the chef you know, all over what they perceived as a, a disrespect to a conservative uh, senator from Texas. Right. And I had a long conversation with Fabio, who was in uh, Italy at the time, and he was like, this is a whole new era. We don't right. even know what to do. Right. It's like, you know, our staff doesn't deserve this. We don't deserve this. We're scared for our kids. Right. You know, we have kids at home and we work most of the days and we're nervous about this. 
And we're just trying to do the right thing because we are a restaurant in a political town and you can't pick sides. Right. I mean, that's just not smart business to yes. pick sides. Yes. And it's also illegal because there are one of the protected classes in D.C. is uh, your political affiliation. Mm -hmm. um, so there are many reasons for a restaurant not to play politics in, in restaurants. But um, I think the thing that he said and said very eloquently was that, you know, this is this is not going to be the last of it. We're going to we have to be prepared for this. And this is a whole new level of preparation for restaurants. And he's hired security guard for yeah, his restaurant. Right. He's having training for his staff. Um, and he's he's he hired a private investigator to try to find out how that leak happened. Sure. So yeah. all these are expenses and new ways of thinking about how to um, have, I mean, cause it's, it's a fine dining restaurant, right? Yeah. You can't have this with your guests. Well, and, and, you know, just the sort of, and, and this is the thing that came out from the article and why it felt very sort of vital, um, for you to tell it through, um, Fabio and Maria's perspective and the letter that they wrote, you know, to everybody that subscribes to their newsletter is, is just basically, you know, um, the notion of thinking about the, there, there are small business owners in a city where, you know, um, it, it, there is a political sort of class and, and, and folks, there is, for the, for the reasons you described, um, no way to pick a side one way or the other um, in addition to it being illegal. From their perspective, they're trying to run a, a restaurant. Um, what are the what are what are they supposed to do? What are the rules of the road supposed to yeah. be for, for for you know yeah. serving hungry people? Yeah. So I I, I uh, um, agree that there is going to be more of this. I think the most important thing um, is to do what what you did, which is to try and steer away from the misinformation, the disinformation, the active um, sabotage. Of the of 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 the restaurant because of being perceived on one side, or or the other. I mean, I I'm in a neighborhood up not that far away from Comet Ping Pong, the pizza oh place yeah. in, here in Washington D.C. That through um, you know absolutely no basis in fact whatsoever um, was was linked in with some kind of you know through through the the worst kind of disinformation uh, and conspiracy theory internet vehicles with with a pedophilia ring uh you, the most grotesque kind of of uh you know and, and irresponsible doesn't even come close and it it motivated a person from north carolina to get into his car and drive up here with a gun to try and liberate the children that this this gentleman believed yeah were, were uh at risk because of this grotesque story that was out there on the internet, uh, that that has to stop. Like we we can't have people from anywhere coming into yeah. restaurants where we live and eat and go with our children because of of their 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 per, their perception based on this disgusting misinformation yeah. that gets shared. Yeah, this guy he brandished a gun and walked into a crowded neighborhood restaurant with kids and started looking for the the child uh, pedophilia ring. You know, and of course he'd found nothing. Right, right. It's disgusting. Yeah. Uh, of course he found nothing. I mean, it's and and you know, it's it's tough to to put myself in that gentleman's shoes. I I can't imagine what was going through his head, but 
it wasn't a pre it was it was it was a hundred percent premeditated in the sense that he had the entire drive up here to Washington to think yeah. about what he was about to embark upon. It wasn't in a fit of rage or in response to something that he read on the internet and then felt like he had to go act on. He had hours yeah. to think yeah. through, you know, what he was about to embark upon, and you know, he's in jail where he belongs for uh, a reasonable period of time. And hopefully that message gets sort of yeah. shared uh, yeah. out there uh, because, you know, the people that live in this town and the, the restaurateurs that run restaurants in this town, we'd like to all just sort of go on with our lives if that's okay. You know, it's amazing. I had uh, a few conversations with the owner of Comet Ping Pong. His name is James Elephantis. Um, and he's been a restaurateur in DC for quite a while. He owns the Bucks uh, yep. next door. Yep. And, he won't even go on the record. He doesn't want, I've been trying to get him to talk about what his life has been like after it's called the pizza gate. Right, right. And, um, it's been horrific for him. I can't get into some of the details that he shared privately, but his life was turned upside down and it lasted for a long, long time. Well, and the there are still people that believe it. Yeah. I mean, you still see some remnants of this pizza gate con conspiracy. I, I, there, there's no accounting for, for that, uh, you know, in this sort of day and age, um, people reading the internet and believing the things that they want to yeah. believe based on, uh, what, what's out there. I, uh, I'm not going to hold you too much longer, but I want to end on a slight, slightly lighter note. Good, if, if, good, we may, if we may, yeah. uh, you ha have, uh, are near and dear to my heart because you populate the $20 diner, um, uh, column here in DC with with gems. You you reveal here to the good folks of the DMV twenty dollar diner. That's what it's called. That's right. Yes. Yep. Um, through through that vehicle, places that people wouldn't naturally um, see, wouldn't get you know press releases about or, or or show up. You're out there, boots on the ground, finding these venues, and you uh, just today was it in today's paper or yesterday? Little Sesame. That um, it'll be in Friday's paper. In but Friday, we, well, I already but, saw but, it on the internet. Right. We we publish it a few days ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 And that was so. So your your most recent uh, was the arrival of or or it, th these folks um, the the uh, proprietors have been in a different uh, venue before opening up this brick and mortar right. on L Street. They right? were in the basement of their former deli and doing kind of a, a hummus-based menu. And they just, uh, they closed it down. They closed the deli down, closed the, the little hummus shop down and reopened a few months later in this beautiful space in downtown DC. And they're kind of following the, if you know it, the Dizengoff in, in Philadelphia model of serving hummus bowls. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing to see. It's like they've invested so much time and and resources and and thinking about how to make this this lovely creamy light hummus that's not the kind you get from yeah, you're not taking a tub from the deli case yeah. i mean to all of the the culinary comrades out there you know from from the travails uh <laughs> well travails over is, is the wrong word just the 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 wonderful experience chris ryan and i had in philadelphia at the the disengolf part of the solomonov yeah. uh um empire um and you know the basic message is uh hummus is is an entree 
right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not a little dip that you just put your pita bread in and wait for your, your meat, you know, your, your rack of lamb to show up. It's, it's a real dish. And they like up at Disney golf, they, they have a fairly broad, uh, they're kind of like daily rotations. It's, it's like they think of new ways of presenting it almost daily. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's about six different bowls at little sesame and they're seasonal. So they, they try to use seasonal, oh, uh, you know, uh, vegetables in each one. And they're just, they're really nice. I mean, you know, it, it depends on if you like hummus. I mean, yeah. it, you have to like hummus. Yeah. That's like, the starting it, point. Yeah. I mean, if it's, I think of it, I was having this conversation with one of the owners and, you know, I asked him, it's like, to me, what you're doing with hummus sort of reminds me of like bread makers, pizza makers or barbecue, because it's like one thing mm -hmm. that you're just obsessing over. Yes. You're thinking of, and it's only a few ingredients, but there are countless variations in ways to bring out flavors, textures, um, maybe add a little more garlic to it. So it has a more pronounced bite to it. Um, all these different ways that people manipulate the few ingredients that make hummus, but there's this whole beautiful bounty of different styles of hummus, but they've focused on this very artisanal approach and it makes this beautiful canvas, like a really great, like pizza crust that the chef has been working on for months to get the, the hydration, right. The, the, the fermentation, right. The rolling out, right. Mm. All of that stuff that goes into what seems so simple, like a pizza crust, but it's not, it's a base for, it's a beautiful base, flavorful base for other ingredients. And it all comes together in a great dish. And, 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 and infinite other ingredients. That's what I, yeah. I, um, the, the appeal, like the reinventing of hummus and, and reimagining it and thinking about it as a canvas upon which to apply really anything that, that, that you, you, uh, you know, you can imagine, I don't, I can't think of, let me think what wouldn't go good with hummus. I mean, Cho maybe chocolate wouldn't i don't know what i bet somebody could make it work i bet you're right yeah. i bet you're right but yeah. but i'm i'm thrilled to have little sesame here in washington and and have an entrant into the serious hummus uh yeah you know universe right here in my own backyard so thank you for oh yeah have you have you been no i've okay. only i've been to disney golf but i okay. haven't been to little sesame yeah so you know i didn't read. i'll be curious you to just see. had your column i be curious to see what you think <laughs> i can't I, I can't wait so uh you we just discussed Discovered you are uh, three blocks away from here, which means uh, you're gonna. I'm gonna be pestering you, and the next time I get you know uh, a handful of, of of your latest columns together and a couple of these twenty dollar diner things, I'm gonna have to drag you back down here. You're gonna have to come on House of Carbs again. Uh, it's my pleasure. This has been a delight. Thank you so much for the time today, Tim Carmen. All right, my taste buds, huge thanks to Tim Carmen for coming over. We were able to sit down together right here in the nation's capital on K Street. He has an office on K Street, and I have an office on K Street. We sat down. We talked. It was a wonderful conversation. He promised to come on again. I'm going to hold him to it. We're going to have, of course, some wonderful food news for you. But before we get there, let me tell you about something that's not very smart. You know what's not smart? Having a bye week if you're the Washington Deadskins and not coming up with a game plan to stop Drew Brees. You know what also isn't smart? Replacing Kirk Cousins, perfectly viable middle-tier quarterback with a bum who apparently in his 10th year, I don't know how many years Alex Smith has been in the league, but he's still play out there playing with happy feet 
I'm not having it. That's not smart. You know what is smart, my friends? Going to ZipRecruiter.com slash carbs and hiring the right person. My friend, ZipRecruiter does not depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It has a powerful matching technology that scans thousands of resumes and identifies people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job. They're actively inviting those candidates to apply so you are getting qualified candidates fast. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. This rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. That means it's a valid statistic. Right now, House of Carbs listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash carbs. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash C-A-R-B-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash carbs. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. All right, my taste buds, it is now time for Food News. Yo, Juliet. Hey, 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 what's up? What is happening? Great food news this week. I'm excited to dive into these stories. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to dive in as well. I just want to report to follow up on last week's food news. I did indeed throw hatchets in the wood. In the woods. In the wood. It was really a wood. <laughs> Were you wearing flannel? I was in Northern California. Uh, I had on... Now, flannel would have been fine, though, because... Um, the where we were situated among the redwoods mm. and the Douglas fir, these incredibly enormous trees. I've never seen trees like this in my whole entire life. So you've never uh, seen redwoods before. They feel like. Say again. You've never seen redwoods before. No, I mean, I, I think I've I've seen them, but like not been in a redwood forest, not not like you know, uh, toured around a little bit. Um, they're pretty amazing. I've been to the Muir Woods. Um, how did you fare against your competition? Were you like the biggest hatchet thrower? I was, uh, I didn't fare as well as some guys had real strategies. They were looking for the proper number of rotations to get the whole purpose of, of the throwing was, um, for our competition to get the, uh, hatchet to stick. We weren't really that worried about target. Um, if it stuck, that was good enough for our purposes. And so my strategy was to throw them as hard as I could. And with one target, that worked quite well. With another target, where the wood was, it was a little bit further away and the wood was a little bit harder, I was bouncing the hatchet off of there. And a couple times, it flew all the way back at me. Oh, no. So the good people, of the, whoever it was in Detroit that was saying that they, you know, they, they were going to review the um, danger level of drinking and, and hatcheting, I think they, they might have been onto something. <laughs> I'm glad you're safe, and I'll, I assume all your comrades are safe as well. Yeah, I, I was the only one in danger. It bounced off the, the, the enormous redwood ring and came flying back at, at just me. Not any, uh, Everybody else was smart enough to stay far away when I was throwing, uh, and I was able to dodge it. Nice. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. But I didn't know I was going to be able to bounce it off of there that hard. Um, will you be doing this again? Is it going to be a, a repeat? 
I don't I don't think so because <laughs> I don't I don't know if we're gonna be <laughs> convening in Northern California in this way again. Pescadero, California. What one of these cool little you know, south of Half Moon Bay, these communities in between San Francisco and uh I don't know, Santa Cruz, I yeah. guess. Do you Pretty know what, cool. You know it's a great California state. Is cool. California. Northern California is really nice. As you know, I used to live there. It's pretty cool. Wouldn't want to live there I again, but it is really nice for visiting. I, I got to become yes. more of like a mountain person. I'm, as you know, I'm like really a city girl, so it's kind of like I have limited interest in like going into the woods or being anywhere where like the cell service might be spotty or like I can't like just like walk to get a coffee. But it does sound really idyllic and lovely, and, and a good opportunity to wear yeah. flannel, which I'm always interested in. You're right. All of those things are true, by the way. Spotty cell service, being in the woods. If you're in the woods, we're like the the place where I was. You kind of lose sense of time, yeah, because the sun is pretty well blocked out. Like you can't tell what kind of day it's going to be. Um, makes for some great sleep. I'll say that much. Yeah, I bet. Um, my childhood bedroom didn't have windows, so I'm well accustomed to that. You know, it's New York City living oh, for you. Wow. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some food news. Okay. The first one's a beer story. We don't really talk about beer that much compared to liquor because I think we're both liquor people. But I like a yeah. fun time, and beer is often a, a part of a fun time. And if you are also like that, I suggest you head to College Park, Maryland, where you can re- get a 77-pack of Natty Light. The headline in the story, which comes from Food & Wine, is Natural Light releases a, 70- releases a 77-pack of beer to celebrate the year it was crafted. So... I, in the rundown that uh, nephew Kyle provided us, I like didn't really pay attention to the story because I was like, what's natural light? Um, it's kind of funny. We we're talking about that after my room with no windows. Uh, I was like, what's natural light? And just like, kind of like kept it moving. And then I was like, oh, Natty Light. I've heard of that. I went to college. <laughs> yeah, Natty Light. <laughs> Natty Light. Now, I, I'm not going to sing the entirety of the University of Maryland fight song, but I love this story because of and I, I you and I both weren't able to come up with a connection I'm sure there's a connection being reported somewhere else this 77 pack did I just jump the story by the way it's okay carry on keep it going <laughs> uh, this 77 pack is only available in College Park Maryland yes. which is the, the, the campus of which is two miles from where I grew up I mean I can sing the Maryland fight song I'll just do a part of it okay go for dun, it dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, that's as much as I'll do. And okay. it ends with M-A-R-Y-L-A-N-D. Marilyn <laughs> will win. <laughs> Great job, House. And then a drum flourish. Yeah. A drum flourish is essential anyway. to any good fight song. Um, so anyway, yeah. you can get the 77 pack. It's all 12 ounce beers. And uh, yeah, it's only available in College Park, Maryland. Just want you all to know it exists. It's pretty wild. Barstool UMD tweeted out a picture of it. It looks ridiculous, and it's something like 60-something pounds. It's 65 pounds, so that's really heavy. It comes in a hexagonal packaging, and it says on it, 77 natties. So this is beer stunt marketing at its finest. I love it. It's simple, it's straightforward, and a little mysterious because we don't know why. It's only in College Park. (laughs) The company wouldn't even say. Well, it is fun. We've done now um, twice in the last month beer stunt uh, marketing because we did the Bud Light with the uh, with the locked up refrigerators for the for the Cleveland Browns first win. Right. You know what's amazing to me is the amount of creativity in, in the beer space because I just feel like whenever celebrities are going into the liquor business or the alcohol business, I'm just like, why? Like, why are you going to do better than someone else? But it really is a space of creativity. The things they come up with for marketing is pretty impressive. There's tons of room. I will give a very quick shout out 
um, to Bud Light. We don't have any affiliation with Bud Light here on House of Carbs, although we're open, we're available. But they did uh, send me a T-shirt um, reflecting the 2018 Stanley Cup win. It's a beautiful T-shirt with the Caps logo, the Washington Capitals, the 2018 Stanley Cup winners. There is a hidden message that is only available if you flip the shirt up and show your belly. Now, I don't know if you're supposed to write dilly dilly on your belly <laughs> and flip this up and it says, let's go Caps. So uh, I think I'm going to have to go to a Caps game and put this T-shirt into motion, take a picture, maybe take a video, flip it up and, and do a dilly dilly. Let's go Caps. Oh, my God. You're joining the dilly dilly crowd. That's a big deal. <laughs> I, I, You know what? I feel like I've always been dilly dilly. <laughs> When you when when you know you know. Um, when you know you know. Yeah. All right, house. Next story. This one will mean a lot more to me than to you, but I just want to talk about it anyway. It comes from the website delish.com, and the headline is "Dream Job Alert: Buckingham Palace is hiring a sous chef." This is huge news. Uh, the story goes on to say that. Um, Buckingham Palace is hiring a sous chef for a role in the Royal Household's catering department. They're looking for a full-time employee to work five days a week, both at the palace and other royal residences. Per the job description, you'll plan and develop menu items for a wide range of events, as well as helping to manage stock levels. I just want to say that's both very high and very low work. So <laughs> um, it seems like it might be a lean team if you're asked to do both of those. But um I don't know. This does sound like a dream job. If you like have if you have a culinary background, but you don't really want to work in a restaurant and you um, are obsessed with the royals, why wouldn't you want this job? It just sounds fantastic. Yeah. I, so the attraction is clearly working in the palace, right? Like, of course, it's a kind of job where there are people in the world, maybe including you, who would pay them for the opportunity to show up at the palace every day and and do work and maybe. Uh, I don't know how often uh, a job like this would have you uh, in in position to bump into a royal. Oh, I think or the, frequently. Or the extended family, but I think because you know they often. have strict protocols for that, right? Oh yeah, of course. But still, I bet you have yeah. to get like some kind of clearance and whatnot. I bet it could work out. Deep clearance. Yeah, deep clearance. Deep clearance. Okay, so I won't be applying, but I just wanted everyone to know this job is out there because it's like pretty important to me. I mean, what it, it is, we are in a day and age, this is the last thing I'll say, where it's not insane that a job like that, you could be planning meals because you have the parents of young children um, that, that come through there. So like if you're, if you're planning um, a meal for, for, for uh, shit, what's the, what's the older brother's name? Charles? William? Charles. Tr- William. If William. you're planning meals for William and Kate's offspring... It's not impossible that Kate would want to give you a little input. No, of course not. Although I guess she could just send an email. <laughs> I guess she could, but whatever. I think it just seems really fun. It just seems like the kind of thing also okay. you could like build a uh, like a silly movie around. So maybe someone's getting inspired. Perhaps I'm inspired. Who knows? Okay, Word. next pizza news. Can't can't overlook pizza. This is a this is a scandalous one, and this is from the Today Show today.com. And they ask, was Little Caesars caught serving DiGiorno pizza? And there's a viral video that suggests perhaps it were. DiGiorno is famous for its TV commercials featuring the tagline, it's not delivery, it's DiGiorno. But a new viral video has many questioning whether the frozen pizza brand does in fact deliver to a popular pizza chain. 
I just want to say I, I happen to love DiGiorno's thick crust oven pizza. I do not like the thin crust, though. A video posted to Twitter on Saturday purportedly shows a woman with a large cart filled with, a, with DiGiorno frozen pizza boxes, and she's standing at a Little Caesars shop counter. The unusual circumstance has prompted a lot of questions, and the video has over 41,000 retweets, and it was shared by Chrissy Teigen, most important of which is, was the pizza pizza chain actually serving DiGiorno? People on Twitter responded with a lot of different theories. And DiGiorno got in touch with the Today Show, and they said they have no idea what's really going on in the video, but they appear to be delighting in the new tension on social media, responding to many people on Twitter. Uh, Little Caesars then said, Little Caesars only serves freshly baked pizzas made from fresh dough. After some investigating today, it turns out that what appeared in this video was just a funny coincidence. And I like DiGiorno being like, yeah, no, no bad publicity for us. We're all in on it. And I kind of think of the same for Caesars. It's a win. I haven't thought about Little Caesars in a while. Word. <laughs> I'm with you 100% uh, on, on all accounts. I'm glad that there is a perfectly innocent uh, explanation. Apparently, this Little Caesars is situated very proximate to a Kmart, and the DiGiorno pizzas that are featured in the shopping cart um, were intended to be disposed of because they were beyond <laughs> their expiration date. And so there was a Kmart manager uh, or the employee walking with a giant cart of DiGiorno pizzas that I maybe went into Little Caesars for a slice. Got so inspired by having a cart full of pizza, they just had to have one. Yeah. I, I like it all. Like it, it's, it's I like a, it all, too. Good, good nod for DiGiorno. Uh, I'll tell you, I haven't done... Uh, a frozen pizza in a while. Maybe I should give it a try. Um, it's really good, I think. I, I also just like oven pizza. Like, it's not the same as pizza pizza. That was no right. pun intended. Whoa. But un- oven pizza is good. It has its place. <laughs> okay. Give it a shot, man. I, I haven't I haven't had an occasion to, to bump into it in a while. I'm going to uh, maybe include that in the next two weeks, the menu. Oven pizza is a good, like, backup. Like, oh, I don't feel like dealing with dinner. Or, like, oh, I just am too tired. Or, like, oh, I don't I don't feel like ordering in. And just it's there. Also incredibly cheap. I mean, you can't under, undervalue that. Did you order your go-to, you it's, said? It's yeah. the second really? dinner thing that it really appeals to me. I find myself uh, many times, uh, especially in the summer, like, eating early enough and then wanting a second dinner. And the mm. oven pizza seems, like, kind of brilliant. Mm. Agreed. Basketball okay. season's right around the corner. It could be Ooh. perfect for my West Coast yeah. games you're watching. What what's what um team in the Western Conference that's like be like, like that doesn't count to be like the Pelicans that's one hour behind you, but like what team are you most excited about that you could imagine yourself eating DiGiorno pizza while while watching? Oh, that's an out, outstanding question. Um I'm uh very, 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 very interested. This is gonna be the most boring answer ever. The Lakers? But I'm super interested. Yeah, of course. Of the course. Lakers. It's yeah. such an experiment. I know. And who's more compelling than the than the than the LeBroner? He's awesome. He really is great. I, I couldn't be happier to have him in LA. I saw this I said this on the NBA show this week. Like I would just be so happy if I saw him out in the wild. Like I, I almost want to like hang out in his neighborhood more just to like catch him or something at like at Starbucks. <laughs> you like, you are gonna see him. I really you hope so. Hip joints, eh. and he is a hipster. Let I'm there trying, be no doubt. He's a closet hipster. I'm, I'm like kind of in, in like a, a home phase. Where I'm just like, I think I'll just stay home right now. But, that, but except for if I could run into <laughs> LeBron. <laughs> right. Well, maybe that'll get you up and about. Yeah. And while I'm home, I thought I'd be drinking LaCroix, but there's a lawsuit that I want to tell you about. This, oh no! I love Pomple Mousse LaCroix. I mean, I think it's un, undebatable that that is the best flavor. 
Don't at me. Um, but this is a story from USA Today. And the headline is, LaCroix faces lawsuit for allegedly including cockroach insecticide ingredient in its sparkling water. A law firm, Beaumont Costales, filed the suit on behalf of a customer, Lenora Rice, CBS Philadelphia reports, and claims testing revealed synthetic ingredients. LaCroix denied the allegations. The lawsuit said that uh, this lawsuit was filed against LaCroix's parent company and alleged the sparkling water advertised as all natural actually had this insecticide. The lawsuit says LaCroix, in fact, contains ingredients that have been identified by the Food and Drug Administration as synthetic. These chemicals include limonene, which can cause kidney toxicity in tumors, linalool propionate, which is used to treat cancer, and linalool, which is used in cockroach insecticide. The lawsuit also states that LaCroix makers are aware of alleged unnatural ingredients. This is very upsetting for me. I love LaCroix. Um, Additionally, the United States and Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, considers natural on a food label to be truthful and non-misleading when nothing artificial or synthetic including all color additives, regardless of source, has been included in or has been added. That's what the company said. I don't know, House. This is very upsetting to me. <laughs> what? So what does the back of the can say? I'm confused. Um, I believe that the back of the, the can... So on the box, it does say the all-natural. It says, like, pure sparkling water. And then yeah. the actual can itself does say, like... Mango essence, or like, and then sparkling natural sparkling water, or pure pure natural sparkling water. I don't know if it has a full ingredients list on the on the can. Actually, I think it might just be on the box. Well, I think this dispute boils down to a, like a genuine, uh, you know, hide the ball kind of thing. Like either because you you they they're not permitted. If I'm understanding this FDA uh, guidance, this directive. You can't have those ingredients that are listed in in the lawsuit. Those ingredients all amount to synthetic substances. Yes. And if those are in the water, then you don't get to call it natural. And right. so I think the lawsuit must be alleging that uh, LaCroix is improperly holding itself out to the world as all natural. I think I think that's correct. And th- you know, there's so many knockoffs of LaCroix. I mean, it's not really a knockoff, like. I think like carbonated water is something that we can all take claim to, but there's right. <laughs> there's so many like knockoffs, back, lack of a better term, that I have just wonder that like do like does my store brand grapefruit sparkling water also have like all these things I need to worry about in them? I I don't know. I got to stick to my soda well, stream. I, I think is this the point here. I I like Lacroix as well, and if I'm ever going to drink carbonated water, it's it's the one that's most available. It seems. It's in you know workplace refrigerators. It's on golf course in, in golf courses and available like all the, all the walks of life where I might encounter sparkling water. It might be in the mood, and that's not very often for me. I, I I'm not like you. I like it maybe like uh, once, like two a month or so. It's a I'm daily a occurrence for me. Kind of fella. Every day. Yeah, bring, I know. I know. Bring it on. But it part of the appeal to me is the fact that it's refreshing. And has a an essence is the great word that helps kind of steer uh, a taste a taste the taste buds, but it doesn't have anything in it that suggests uh, 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 that I should be concerned about it. Um, if it has all this other stuff, these these what what the lawsuit alleges, I'm out. I know, me too, and I I just got to stick to my Soda Stream exclusively, which I think I'm gonna do because I don't know who I can and can't trust anymore. 
But where do you get the ingredients for the soda stream? It's just water with CO2. I just go to the cooler here, oh, well, here in my... Just, but, so you don't include essences in your no, own no. Soda, I, soda stream? When I use the soda stream, I go flavorless. Flavorless. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. That's safe. I just There's like no the danger. bubbles. Yeah, just, exactly. Yeah. Bubbles. As, I, I would like an essence. As a former soda addict, I just love the bubbles. Sure. That, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. That's all I got, House. Thank you so much for having me, as always. As always, those are great stories. Juliet, we're going to see each other next week. Yes. We shall be together in each other's presence and company in Los Angeles, California. I know. I'm psyched. When we can break away from, from NBA Palooza, the great ringer production in anticipation of the forthcoming NBA season. But we've got to make time for food. We've got to make time for food news. So we'll be sitting in each other's company. I bet those stories will be good ones. I can't wait. See you then. There we go, Hungry Homies, a wonderful house of carbs in the books. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Tim Carmen. I know I did, and I'm on my way out to go sample some of that delicious little sesame hummus that we talked about. I am in Los Angeles, California next week. So House of Carbs is going to be an L.A.-based, L.A.-focused. I'm going to be sitting across the table from Juliet. I think the podfather, Bill Simmons, may come on. We're going to talk about the food that we have eaten upon my arrival and the things that we intend to eat. Check out the Instagram at the House of Carbs. We shall be posting pictures. I bet I make my way over to Major Domo and do some major damage. My hungry homies, check it out. Until then, let's stay hungry out there. (laughs) 